think they're still functioning. Yamal Europe uh, got shattered uh, periodically. Nord Stream 2 is gone. Nord Stream 1 is functioning. Nord Stream 1 is fully owned by Gazprom. Uh, Nord Stream 2 uh, it was financed. Uh, finance can probably speak more about that because it was a, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit of a mess how it got financed. Uh, but ultimately, the ultimate owner has Gazprom for both of those pipelines. Um, so yeah, that's that pretty much sums it all up. Uh, is there? Yeah, thanks, Bonnie. I guess so. So in the news, right? When we hear about Gazprom lately, it's mostly been executive so and so gets murdered. Like, what? I mean, what do you think is going on? Why are so many Gazprom executives and former executives getting knocked off? Yeah, I've seen them. Some, some of them uh, pr uh, press calling them oligarchs. They're not oligarchs. They're just uh, mid-level or high-level executives uh, within the system. Um, again, I have to make a disclaimer. Uh, these are speculations. We do, we do know that they're, those are not mostly suicides. They're getting assassinated. Uh, we, why they're getting assassinated, we don't know yet. But um, my thinking is that they either have the knowledge of a money trail that the states or some, some of the states and the power circles don't want uh to be known to the rest of the world or to some of the competing power circles within the russian states or these people were actively trying to defect to the west and bring that knowledge to the west or they were corrupt beyond the uh, allowed levels so not given that the russian state is under instant, intense pressure when it comes to the economic sanctions uh they're trying to scrape up um yeah, a clean house and, yeah uh, whatever resources they can find, uh, financial resources. And they're discovering that the level of corruption was above the level that was permissible by the uh, people above them. So uh, uh, obviously for that, they're getting punished severely. Yeah, that makes a lot of is, sense. Uh, thank you. Go ahead, Prince. Madi, is that kind of like being like an alcoholic in the Russian army? Like how corrupt do you have to be that the Russians are like, yeah, man, you're, you went too far? Yeah, it's a... It's like a feudal system that they've got in their entire state, right? So the everyone is corrupt. Everyone is allowed to be corrupt, and everyone is allowed to be corrupt only to a certain degree because uh, ultimately this corruption level is used against those who are not towing the party line. So if you've got someone who's a subordinate uh, to a specific official and they're kind of getting out of hand you immediately use that corruption against them to imprison them or just get rid of them. Uh, but at the same time, they're allowed to be corrupt only to a, to a certain degree uh, because some of the some of the money has to be passed on up the food chain. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's like medieval time. Yeah. So when we hear about, you know, corruption investigations in Russia or China, it's, it's not that they're fixing the corruption problem. It's that a different set of corrupt people are replacing the, the previous people. And now... You know, it's a new meet the new boss, same as the old boss type deal. Yeah, pretty much. Yes. So we've got kind of a, a lull on the panel here. Uh, so I guess very quickly I can uh, talk about our upcoming guests if I can find the cards. Let's see here. But uh, thank you very much. Uh, we've got mainly a finance based panel right now. We also have John if you have a rocket question. Uh, got Dryfly coming up. Uh, I'll let Dryfly go ahead before I do the announcements. Go ahead, Dryfly. Just got a question for Madi, if he knows anything about the recent gas fines in uh, the Caspian. I was reading that there was a huge uh, gas find there probably a year ago, two years ago. It's sort of at the nexus of, of 
Iran, Iran, Russia, Azerbaijan. What is it? Is that uh, what's to the west of it? Is that Kazakhstan to the west? Uh, to the east. To the east, rather. Yeah, I mean, it's in that nexus, and I guess all three of them are in part partially in that field. It's right off from Baku, and my understanding is that the Russians and the Iranians are, uh, have pretty much locked up the distribution rights to it in an effort to try to keep it from going uh, from Azerbaijan through, Tur- you know, through. Uh, Caucasus and Turkey. Do you know anything about that? Can you speak to that? Because I think even though that's not necessarily going to be a short run, uh, you know, not solution, but uh, issue involved in this whole thing, I think it's a, it's it's playing a role in some of the the regional politics. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, it's uh, as of now there there were no new news coming out related to this newly discovered field. Well, it's. Uh... It's not exactly newly discovered. It was, I think, it was three years ago, um, and the Iranians and the Russians uh, tried to negotiate and uh, set up zones of exploitation. Um, obviously, the Russians backstab their Iranian uh, counterparts. Uh, they, I think, uh, back in 2021, uh, the Iranians were complaining that the Russians took up a larger portion. Uh, that was discussed in the negotiating table. So it's still a developing story. I, I actually don't know how it ended because I haven't seen anything uh, popping up in the news in the past year. Um, what I found funny is that it's, it's, and I think we discussed it before, this is happening, uh, and you're right, not far away from Azerbaijan. And if you look at the map, what boggles my mind is that it's, it's in the territorial waters of Azerbaijan. So it's 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 a really bizarre situation, and and I think we mentioned, we discussed it before. When when Russia loses this war, there will be a significant reconsideration of international borders within the Caspian Sea as well, because it's it's not a done deal. It's been going on for the past thirty years. It started in nineteen ninety one. Uh, it stalled for 10, 10 years, then it picked up again in two thousand. Uh, progressed a bit in 2014, but there's always a little bit of a back and forth going there. Yeah, I met some people at Adepec probably three years ago. Um, that's in uh, the UAE. Uh, it's probably the second largest oil and gas show in the world behind uh, OTCNet, which is in Houston. And there was a guy there telling me that that find is massive. I mean, it is just absolutely huge. And it's um, not quite as big as the field between Iran and Qatar, but it's big. And they they were telling me that um, that the political intrigue is what was holding it back, the development, clearly. So, yeah, I, I was just curious if you knew anything about it. And it's also could be part of why Iran and, and uh, Russia are working out so well, because Iran would like to have much better terms. And if they play nice with Russia with uh, things like drones, who knows, maybe that's their their part of their psychology to do it because i think that field is going to be really really big but i don't know i'm for sure yeah yep just just a quick uh remark and then uh i'll, I'll get off uh, yeah there's gazprom there's uh there's there are chinese companies there as well uh i think Sinuk is there in cnpc and they're iranian interests so it's not just russia and iran there's also china involved in there so it's a it's a bit of a mess uh but we'll see what happens uh the negotiations are still not finished. Well, thank you very much, Mahdi. I know you just came up for a quick question. So uh, thank you for, for indulging us and in answering our questions as well. Uh, we appreciate it and uh, have a good night, all right?
Thank you. But uh, Dr. Paul, we got you back. I see. Uh, did you have a question for finance? Okay, maybe not. Uh, but I do know we have a languages update pretty soon. So uh, we'll go to liberal um, real quick. J- then maybe J- we J- can J- get. Uh, Hey, oh, yeah. Hang on one second. Uh, his microphone's working. Just there's just just be patient with us, guys. Uh, there's a little a little Twitter glitch here. Um, microphones aren't muting and unmuting quick enough, so we'll just um, we'll slow the pace down to just just try to uh, to get you guys to unmute your mics and stuff. Uh, we're we're working through it. Thank you. Yeah, sorry, I wasn't aware there was a such substantial. I knew there were some technical difficulties, but Dr. Paul, can you hear? It? I can. We can hear some sounds. Is it your headset, Dr. Paul? We can hear some. Uh, we lost something? him. Okay. All right. Well, it's like musical chairs. Uh, language learners up here. Portland's up here. We got John. We got liberal finance. Uh, liberal, we're going to do this. Uh, we're going to try. Uh, we're going to go 0 and 3. Let's see if uh, if we can get your mic. In. Liberal, go ahead. Hey, John. Um, or Gurney, I should say, and Joseph. Uh, yeah, I had a question for Marty. I always enjoy when he's up just uh, as much as I enjoy when Chuck Farrar is uh, on the panel. Um, I had a question for Marty. Uh, I know he dropped down, but I think he's still a listener. If we can bring him back up, if he had an opinion on Gerhard Schroeder's um, involvement in Gazprom and Rosneft and what impact or influence that has on seemingly Germany's reticence to provide weaponry and not upset um, Putin. Yeah, I know he spoke to it very briefly. Uh, He just mentioned that Schroeder was in, like, literally toasting Putin uh, when Crimea happened because he was celebrating uh, his birthday or or something to that effect. So uh, maybe if um, oh, Mahdi's coming back up. Here we go. But we this will be the last question for Mahdi, everyone, because Mahdi's got a he's a he's a Ph.D. student. I've been there. It's 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 busy, busy life. Let me tell you. You, you wake up with a stack of books and you go, there's no way I can read all this. And it's, it's every day. Maddie, go ahead. Oh, just pure speculations. Uh, we have to look at Putin's background. Uh, he was a KGB officer uh, stationed in eastern Germany before the collapse of the Soviet Union and before the collapse of the Warsaw Pact. And he is, his knowledge of uh, the German language is excellent. He works closely with Stasi. Uh, so he has a lot of connections in Eastern Germany and all of those young officers and young politicians who were uh, in the in the right circles back then um, kind of remain uh, in close proximity to the power circles or within the power circles of Germany. And unfortunately, Axel is not here. Uh, so I'll be speculating about Germany without any Germans in here, which is unfortunate. Uh, but yeah, so I think this plays a huge role. Um, he kind of built a good connection and relationship with Schroeder while Schroeder was a chancellor. Um, it kind of later on transferred on after Schroeder left. Um, and he he didn't get the job offer immediately uh, to join Gazprom. Um, I can't remember the ex- exact gap uh, in between, but he joined uh, pretty pretty quickly. Uh, obviously, Schroeder, given that he was a uh, chancellor, uh, still had a lot of connections within the uh, German political circles, um, and that possibly played a huge role uh, in terms of negotiating with uh, Russia uh, all of the energy contracts. Uh, that's why Germany, uh, after Fukushima, uh, Fukushima was used extensively to lower uh, the uh, the positive thinking about nu- nuclear power in Germany, um, and that got gradually phased out, uh, sh- uh, pushing Germany uh, into using a-, a lot more gas than 
they were before this entire thing happened. So it sure does look that way. Um, but again, we don't know for certain, but it does look that way. Yeah, I agree. Walks like a duck, talks like a duck. Go ahead, liberal. I was just going to say, thanks, Marty. I know that's probably out of your wheelhouse. I know you kind of, uh, are an expert in like the caucuses and, uh, some aspects of Russia, but I thought you might have an opinion on that. Um, I think it's, um, something that, that has, um, that we're seeing now. So thank you, sir. Okay. Um, just going to make a, a quick housekeeping thing here. Um, we're joined by language learner. Uh, he's going to give a military update here. We're also joined by Portland and John Ridge while John's connection is stable. Um, and thank you, Madi, for coming back up here. We'll, uh, we'll relieve you back to the, to the PhD studies at, at London business school there. And thank you liberal for the question. Um, and with that, Susan has been trying uh, to get up here. So Susan, um, would you like to go ahead with your with your question or comment? And then after that, we would get to uh, languages update. Um, and then for the House, stay tuned because we've got John in Portland. So we'll discuss things going boom in Ukraine because there's quite a bit of a, there's a, a mem going around here that says Super Nova Kokovka, uh, a play on words there with Nova Kokovka and an ammo dump, a uh, very important ammo dump that went uh, boom there tonight. And then also... Uh, Three high-ranking Russian uh, Russian flag officers are reported to have been um, killed in a command post that was also uh, struck down in Kherson, a little bit further south than, than Nova Gokova. So, a uh, lot of lot of motion there, and we've got quite a quite a few listeners in the house uh, that are tuning in tonight, probably because the uh, events on the ground. So, with that, Susan, go ahead. Uh, I've got a question about um, the situation. Should Russia start to withdraw forces? What is the what are the rules of engagement with regards to retreating forces? Um, is is it Ukraine's position or expectation to push them back into Russia, or is it better to cut them off and crush slash destroy them so that they can never step foot in Ukraine again? I'm not sure what's allowed. Sometimes uh, sometimes what I would do doesn't seem to be um, the appropriate rules of engagement. Uh, so I'm asking. So that's a good question. Um, at this point, frankly, the whole purpose of this war is not, you know, the goal to kill every Russian soldier on Ukrainian soil. The goal is to Ukraine, uh, for Ukraine to have its territorial sovereignty restored. Whether or not there's Russian forces that were there that have left and are alive is irrelevant. Um, also, to be perfectly blunt, Russia has thus far been fairly effective at covering its retreating forces. There's been a couple examples of this where they were exposed to possibly being flanked or, you know, surrounded and captured, killed en masse, north of Kiev, Sumy, Chernihiv, Kharkiv. None of those, you know, granted circumstances have come to pass. Russia is, as I actually would argue, one of the most effective uh, military strategies or military operations has been covering their retreat. However, they are still active combatants on the field of battle participating in the invasion of another country, and as such, they would be lawful targets, um, you know, under the rules of war. Uh, and I, I'm sure this isn't what you meant, but just in case, you know, maybe I misunderstood it, I don't think there's any indication that Ukrainian troops would pursue Russian troops into the territory of the Russian Federation. And I don't think that's what you said, but just in case I misunderstood it there, that's pretty much a non-starter. Yeah, no, I had I had no expectation or, or um, have no expectation that Ukraine 
would leave their own sovereign territory. I just wondered if they would cut off lines of retreat and eradicate uh, forces that in the future would ever want to come back. I mean, um, Su- Susan, there's a there's a few steps maybe there that's I I, I not going to speak to it, but um, there's probably a few steps that have to happen to maybe answer that question with with more specificity, other than than you know talking about law of of armed con- conflict and parties to that. Um, Portland, I think Portland might want to go ahead maybe on law of armed conflict, but uh, but to the strategic side, uh, Susan, there, there's a lot of variables in play. Um, and a lot of assumptions there. And so it's kind of hard to pin down, you know, whether or not, um, you know, X party would do one thing if, if Y party retreats and does this. So there's, there's a lot in there, but I'll, I'll go to Portland. Um, yeah. So as far as the, the laws of war, it is perfectly acceptable to destroy enemy forces on the ground, uh, whether they are retreating or not. Um, would Ukraine do it? That's a different question. But as for the question of, is this a thing that people are generally allowed to do in war? Uh, yes. Yes, you are absolutely allowed to uh, do your absolute level best to kill um, anyone that is on sovereign territory, um, whether or not they are retreating. Um, so, a good example of this one is, uh, there's still quite a lot of, uh, I guess, controversy, you could call this, um, about the British sinking the, uh, Argentine cruiser General Belgrano, uh, during the Falklands War, uh, while, uh, the Belgrano was um, ostensibly moving away from the British task force. The the only people who are still contesting this are people of a particular political persuasion in, in the West. If you ask the captain of the Belgrano, no, she was a perfectly legitimate uh, target. Is it necessarily a great idea? Well... That is a different question, but is it permissible under the laws of armed conflict? Yes, it absolutely is. Thank you, Portland. And we're getting more hands going up to this. So um, before they before they start going to that, I I don't want to push language when they're off too far here because we'll probably get a lot of questions with that. So so maybe language, if it's okay uh, for you to go ahead with your update, and we'll park anyone who's got questions on on Susan's question uh, or got Highmar's questions about Nova for after. How's that? Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Uh, do, do we want to, Slava, is, is you have something real quick before languages update? Go ahead. Slava uh, Ukraine, Heroin Slava. Yes, actually, actually, a short answer to the Susan uh, in Ukraine. Uh, I'm in Ukraine. Uh, actually, there is no need to just to make this kotal, like we call it, uh, and just to kill uh, Russians. Uh, it's better for us, in what I hear from the soldiers, uh, better to make uh, more prisoners of the war of the Russians because uh, a lot of the Ukrainian soldiers are are in the Russia. So it's there better for us to get give get more of these prisoners for future exchange. So thank you. I hope it answered. We don't have this blood thirst to kill and kill more. If they uh, shooting to us, 
okay, we're gonna kill them. But uh, if they give up the weapons, we're gonna take them and gonna exchange to uh, to uh, Ukraine. Thank you, uh, to Ukrainian uh, heroes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Slava. Very brief, concise answer. I think it got the point across. Uh, and with that, we'll go to languages, military update. Uh, language, the floor is yours, as long as you need it. Sure. Yeah. If there's any other super quick questions or statements from John or Daniel, then uh, you know, feel free. Otherwise, I'm happy to jump into it. I know Daniel. I think we'll we'll get to Daniel after your update, and I'm sure he'll have an excellent uh, point to make. Uh, but is Daniel Daniel like me is a, a, a verbose guy, so uh, we'll go to your update first language. Go ahead. All right. Well, with that, uh, let's get down to it. Uh, in general, recommend pulling up a map. Uh, we do tend to follow the same order with these things, starting. In the north, moving clockwise, ending with general statements and projections. Um, Google Maps works great. There's another number, uh, militaryland.net, the Institute for the Study of War, Andrew Perpetua, Ukraine War Mapper, War Monitor 3. Or if you click on my profile, if you don't have time for any of that, you're on your phone. At the very top of my profile in the banner is a very, very general map of Ukraine. And I'll generally follow along in that order that the cities are listed there. So you can at least know what region we're in. So, with that, uh, let's begin. This is the military update for Ju- or for July 11th, 2022, day 138 of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, starting in Belarus and proceeding clockwise. Uh, the Belarusian armed forces continue to maneuver along the border regions with Ukraine. Current exercises are in the southeast Homel region and are projected to last until about July 16th. There's been no indication that you or rather Belarus is forming assault groups at this time, which would be necessary if they were to cross the border, and the current threat from the Belarusian armed forces is assessed at low to non-existent. However, the Russian threat has increased with a, another Russian A-50 AWACS craft. These are essentially the command and control crafts that allow uh, fighter jets and bombers to do a tremendous number of things, um, increases their capability uh, somewhat, uh, was spotted in the air over Belarus. It had a Six-hour mission or so was flanked by a number of Russian fighters. All of them are based together uh, more towards the southeast region as well. Uh, Ukrainian forces have been seen fortifying the border regions with lands, mines, and fences. Moving to Kiev and talking about Western Ukraine and any political developments today in Ukraine, uh, the Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, visited the Kiev area, examining Borodanka, Bucha, and Irpin. He said that the Netherlands would provide Ukraine with heavy weapons, including armored vehicles and self-propelled howitzers, and called on allies in Europe to do the same. A naturally occurring fire in the peat bogs north of Kiev sent smoke over the capital, but the Ukrainian government has reiterated that this was due to the way that peat bogs work, essentially um, naturally chemical occurring uh, formations, and not due to any such attack or that there was an attack on the city itself. Zelensky has submitted a draft bill to the Ukrainian parliament to grant special status to Polish nationals in Ukraine. If the bill is passed, Polish citizens will be able to stay in Ukraine for 18 months visa-free and will be eligible for the same social benefits, tax purposes, employment, and education as native Ukrainians. And the parliament has also received another draft law proposing to introduce penalties for businesses who stay open during air raid alerts. The first violation would cost between 17,000 to 51,000 Ukrainian rivnia or penal labor, while the second violation or one that results in injury or death of another person could lead to three to eight years in prison. This law is specifically in response to the armed store shopping mall strike, where reportedly the mall was previously aware of a air alert 
and neglected to close them all, which contributed to some of the deaths. And per the Ukrainian government, 2,000 Ukrainian soldiers in the armed forces, the conventional armed forces, are missing in action, with another 5,200 of the under uniformed services between the National Guard, Territorial Defense, Intelligence Services, Police, Border Guards are all missing in action, for a total of 7,200 missing in action troops. A number of these are expected to be prisoners of war. Moving further east towards Sumin Chernihiv, in brief, the situation remains the same. Russian forces continue to fire artillery across the border. They continue to move on the other side, but there's been no indication of any impending assaults. Moving further east towards Kharkiv, point three, Russian troops shelled along the front lines with artillery and fired rockets into Kharkiv and along the supply lines leading to the north. Overall, while Russia has not had any gains in several weeks, they appear to have the goal of offensively blocking any Ukrainian attacks by way of consistent harassment of both any assaulting positions Ukraine would fight from or the supplies supporting them. Excuse me. There were harassing attacks coming from the Russian units that are garrisoned in the strong point of Kazachalopan to the south near Prudyanka Denitivka, which were repelled. There was also an attack west from the Russian strong point in Kazachalopan itself. This is where the bulk of Russian forces are to the west in the town of Sosnivka in an attempt to try and dislodge some of these Ukrainian defenders who are currently occupying the closest positions to the Russian border. Apparently, this attack was uh, repelled and followed by subsequently very heavy Ukrainian artillery and airstrikes on Kozachalopan itself, which is the heaviest we have seen in several weeks. The corresponding lack of Russian artillery strikes into Sosnivka after this assault was repelled may indicate a lack of Russian artillery capabilities or other factors limited. To the eastern side of the front, Russia conducted not only artillery strikes, but also a helicopter gunship airstrike into Verkhny Saltiv, which is north of Stary Saltiv, just along the uh, north-south, or rather the western bank of the Sevesky Donetsk River. Russian actions here are believed to be in pursuit of harassing whatever artillery or spotters have been responsible for the deeper Ukrainian artillery strikes towards Volchansk and other Russian logistics positions on the far side of the river. A Russian long-range rocket artillery strike into Kharkiv killed six and wounded 31. And a Russian collaborator, head of government, was killed via car bomb in Velky Burluk, which is much further into the Russian-held areas. Moving further south towards Izium and Liman, point four, Russian forces have again skirmished towards Slovyansk with artillery and rocket fire along the main highway, with a probing assault towards Prasnopila, specifically one of the towns right along the highway as well. Russian forces have been unable to seize meaningful terrain along this axis in the last several weeks, if not months, and the destruction of at least two Russian command posts and numerous smaller ammo depots around Izium have apparently been felt in some measure on the front line. Russia continues to shell from across the river near Liman, but has undertaken no apparent preparations for any river crossings near Rai Haroda. Moving further east towards Lysychansk, and talking of Severodonetsk, Russia continues to launch heavy bombardments all the way along the front, from Bakhmut in the north, from Bakhmut in the south, rather, to Seversk in the north, with Russian advances near Bilharivka, a small town to the northeast of Seversk, skirmishing in the adjacent small town of Raihorivka, which is currently contested. In general, you can look at it as there's three main routes, a top route, a middle route, and a bottom route that Russian troops have the opportunity to take to try and get into Seversk. The top route, running along the river, would be through Bilharivka or Raihorivka, another small town, and then down into uh, Seversk from the north. 
The middle route would be along the main highway, um, which is where we've seen a lot of the main fighting. If you were just driving down the most uh, accessible route, this would be it. Russian forces have met some cons uh, considerable Ukrainian defenses and entrenchments here as of late. The lower third um, is the one around the town of Spurn and Ivano Darivka, which would allow Russian forces to, if they were able to take these small towns along the highway and just to the west of it, that runs uh, north northeast from Bakhmut, then they would be able to cross over some generally forgiving terrain and get into the highway which runs north-south into Seversk and thus be able to flank some of the northern Ukrainian lines. As currently, uh, Russian troops have been able to take sperm. They, there's contested uh, fighting going on in Ivano Dorivka. These are very small towns, and it's unclear who's currently in control. Both sides claim to you know, have the area under lock. And more specifically, going into you know, what urban fighting looks like and talking of Severodonetsk, another video of pitched urban fighting by the Ukrainian 4th Rapid Reaction Brigade, who had served in both Rubizhna and Severodonetsk, where we've seen some of the heaviest urban fighting of the war, uh, had another video they had one a couple days ago uh, talking about you know a single day in the life in Severodonetsk. They stated, between other things in the video, that in all the urban combat between the suburbs and Severodonetsk itself, 300 Russian armored vehicles and 1,000 Russian soldiers were destroyed, as well as an additional 1,500 wounded. Moving further south towards Papazma and Bakhmut, Russian forces continue to strike towards the Bakhmut Highway, towards Berestov and Pokrovsk, small towns to the northeast of Bakhmut itself, and they've been using a tremendous amount of airstrikes and heavy shelling. Bodies continue to be dug out of the rubble of the five-story apartment building in Cheskovyar, a small town further west of, uh, rather, I'm sorry, of Bakhmut, where at least 33 are believed dead. Russia, on the other hand, claimed to have killed 300 Ukrainian soldiers in the single apartment block when they were pressed on the situation in international media. So, you know, uh, one unfortunately seems much more likely than the other. The area to look for regarding the defense of Bakhmut, given that Russia has not apparently devoted the same level of forces or artillery towards taking Bakhmut as they do further north, is the suburb of Zaitsev, which is to the southeast, where Ukraine has made considerable heavy emplacements. Russia will likely have to occupy both this area and areas to the northeast of Bakhmut before it commits to a full assault into the city, and that may not happen for some time, again, given the fact that a bulk of the troops have been deployed further north. Moving to Donetsk, point six, and areas you know, in the general region, Russian troops continue to shell the front lines. Russian forces are prioritizing shelling of Avdivka, as they have been for several months now, and other areas around Donetsk City. Another Russian assault towards Marinka in the southwest suburbs of Donetsk City was repelled. This has become something of a regular thing where the uh, Ukrainian government is starting to almost make jokes about it in their press briefings. And 80% of the population of the Donetsk region has reportedly been evacuated since the war began. And alcohol was banned from sale today again. It was banned across the country earlier in the war. It was re-banned in Donetsk uh, due to the a deteriorating situation and a desire to maintain public order. Moving to Mariupol, the you know, news has not changed much from yesterday. Uh, specifically, there's about 100 Ukrainian military medics who were captured as of stall, who have been recently revealed to still be alive and prisoners of war. Apparently, they are treating not only Ukrainian casualties in these POW camps, but also Russian casualties. And Russia has not apparently 
uh, drawn reference to them in the ongoing POW negotiations. It's unclear whether they're tr just trying to use them as a resource or for some other more nefarious act. Moving further west towards Zaporizhia and the southern axis, point eight, Russian troops continue to leverage artillery and rocket fire along the southern front, but they've launched no major offensive for several weeks now. Ukraine is apparently currently, uh, if not already undergoing, in the late stages of planning for an offensive towards Melitopol. Reportedly, the Russian-appointed district head of Melitopol was subject to an assassination attempt today by an IED, which was found by Russian forces before detonation. In response, a whole district of the city, housing tens of thousands, has been cut off from the rest of the city at its entrances, and Russian forces are carrying out house-by-house -house raids therein. A unit, the 205th uh, Motorized Rifle Battalion, which is based in the south and had previously served in Mariupol, is now close to Melitopol, reportedly had 300 soldiers who refused to further participate in combat operations. This was reported by a pro-Russian source indicating that low morale is continuing to have a severe effect among Russian troops, including those who are already in the thickest of the fight. Moving further west towards Kherson, where we've seen a lot today, Ukraine and Russian forces continue to conduct artillery duels as well as airstrikes. Two Russian gunships, KF-52s, again struck towards the front around Zarichny with no reported losses. On the Ukraine side, three Ukrainian airstrikes were carried out on ammo depots between Kherson and Mykolaiv, especially around the Russian strong points near Snehorivka that lies just along the river. It's one of the sort of the most northwest uh, Russian strong points still existing here. Additionally, at least two Ukrainian helicopter strikes were carried out against Russian positions. Ukraine claims several high-ranking Russian officers were killed during airstrikes near Kherson recently, but no specific evidence has been afforded beyond that. Russian missiles were fired towards numerous settlements, with at least one air-launched missile reportedly self-destructing uh, due to unknown factors before it reached its target. Apparently, another five of these improvised S-300 ballistic missiles were used. These are long-range anti-air missiles, which have been repurposed into some kind of cruise missile capability. It's very much uh, using, like, using a very high-precision uh, screwdriver to, as a hammer. Uh, it can do the job, but that's not what it's designed for, and it indicates that Russia is losing a number of its missile stockpiles. Another video emerged of a massive explosion in Novokakovka, where reportedly a Russian ammo depot of some note was destroyed. Apparently, as a result of these strikes, Russian forces have begun moving some stockpiles back over to the south bank of the Dnipro River and have dramatically increased the checkpoints in Kherson in order to try and stop partisan operations and a potential preparation for any urban fighting that may come. Moving to Odessa and Crimea and the Black Sea, uh, reportedly there's two missile ships and two transport ships, same as yesterday, they didn't fire any missiles. There's still about 16 caliber long-range cruise missiles there. The stormy seas have caused about half of the fleet to return to port. Russian fighter jets launched seven KH-31 air-launched cruise missiles from Crimean airspace directed towards Odessa Oblast and the coast. In Crimea specifically, there's an ongoing, quote, yellow ribbon resistance movement, uh, sort of um, more, more passive, not necessarily people in the streets just yet, with leaflets being distributed urging citizens to protest or find ways to um, impede the Russian occupation forces. Another Russian spy was arrested in Odessa by the Ukrainian intelligence service for trying to locate anti-air and anti-ship defenses in the region in preparation for a large missile barrage that was intended to wipe them out. The first eight foreign ships have arrived in Ukrainian ports by the Danube River, with the goal being to export grain. 
Reportedly, this is partially possible due to the removal of Russian forces from Snake Island, who could otherwise menace the trade route and control more of the airspace, even those ships that came out from the river rather than sailing up. With that, let's move to some general statements. Uh, yesterday, Ukrainian forces eliminated 100 Russian soldiers for a new total of 37,400, four tanks, five armor vehicles, four artillery guns, two vehicles, cars, trucks, and one air defense system. Uh, China has paid about $18.9 billion for Russian oil and gas and coal in the three months from March to May, with a 55% increase in Russian oil imports in May of this year compared to last year. This is almost double the amount that China paid for the same three-month period last year. India, for its part, has spent $5.1 billion in three months, driven primarily by up to 30% discounts on Russian coal. This is five times the amount they spent over the period last year. Overall, Russia has received an additional $13 billion in revenue compared to the same time last year between these two groups. The International Legion in Ukraine uh, rejected Russian claims that 200 legionnaires were killed, but did admit that there have been losses. Specifically, they drew to the case of two Brazilian citizens where a man and woman died as a result of fire and burns suffered during a rocket attack last week. Ukrainian intelligence services warn against the distribution of dangerous emails, specifically one that has the subject joint official report on the humanitarian situation in Ukraine, unquote. In this one, there's a uh, Excel document with the title Humanitarian Catastrophe of Ukraine since February 24th, 2022. If you click on that, it uploads malware. This is the result of a um, Russian state government uh, affiliated hacking group. It's not just some kid. Zelensky echoed other Ukrainian leaders in speaking out against Canada's decision to return a repaired Nord Stream 1 pipeline turbine in exemption from sanctions that Canada currently has, with the stated reason being to ensure, quote, Europe's ability to access reliable and affordable energy as they continue to transition away from Russian oil and gas, unquote. The Kremlin had three weeks earlier reduced the flow of gas to 40% of capacity to Europe and cited these turbines not being returned as the reason Germany supported the move to return the turbine. Zelensky characterized this as appeasement and said that Russia would increase its pressure via energy supplies, knowing they can get away with it. However, Canada had also stated they would expand sanctions against Russia's industrial manufacturing sector at the same time. The president of Brazil, Bolsonaro, said that his country will soon complete work on a contract with Russia regarding the, the purchase of diesel at very low prices. This is likely intended to bolster his own domestic political chances in the upcoming October uh, Brazilian election, which are suffering due to a variety of factors, but including the higher fuel prices. And per Forbes magazine, or for Forbes rather, not the magazine, the Russian artillery currently outnumbers Ukrainian artillery by a factor of five to one, but the long-range NATO rocket systems, such as the HIMARS, are leveling ammo depots and thus leveling the playing field. Looking forward, Russia still appears to be conducting a general pause due to strikes on their logistical backbone. However, this is manifesting as a reduction in ground assaults rather than a total stop of everything. Unfortunately, there's still quite a lot of artillery being fired. In response to statements about the pause, yesterday Zelensky had said that with 34 airstrikes carried out by Russian planes in the last 24 hours, that it doesn't feel like much of a pause, and that the country still requires as much assistance as they can get. And Russian forces near Kherson are likely to be increasingly on edge for potential Ukrainian strikes, as we've seen them mobilizing both in and out of the city and moving things out of the line of fire, as well as Ukrainian troops are apparently edging closer and closer to the city with more and more air support that has thus far not been impeded by the Russian forces and air force, which are just 
south in Crimea, indicating that a battle for Kherson may be upcoming in the not-too-distant future. If there's any questions, I'm happy to stick around. My DMs are always open. You can always click that button in the lower left-hand corner and come on up and let me know if I got something right, wrong, or if it didn't make sense. Thank you. Thank you very much, Language. And uh, we got a big crowd here tonight, maybe some uh, first-time listeners. So I'm just going to do a few announcements. Uh, if everyone could, please, uh, Billy does help us out if you retweet the space. Uh, you can do that uh, in the bottom right hand uh, of your screen. So if you guys could, please uh, retweet the space. It really does help us spread the word about the Russian genocide of Ukrainians and the illegal Russian invasion of Ukraine. So uh, thank you very much for everyone who is able to do that for us and retweet the space, spread the word about the Waltz Report. We are a 24-7 news network dedicated to coverage of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So thanks so much to our listeners. Of course, uh, we do have a lot of uh, great guests coming up. We've got uh, Colonel Jeff Fisher. He's uh, author uh, in the European uh, Global Security uh, area. Uh, he's a media analyst. Uh, he's also de defense attache and uh, joint staff. Uh, he's an expert in electronic warfare, also an Air Force guy. Uh, so Colonel Jeff's coming July 12th, 1030 Eastern Time. Uh, same day, uh, Ir Irina Shev, uh, Ukrainian-born uh, Portuguese journalist reporting in Ukraine for the last four and a half months, uh, will be here. Uh, that's Sorry, that's on uh, July 14th, uh, 12 o'clock Eastern Time. Uh, sorry, James Vasquez will also be here July 12th, uh, and that is at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. So uh, Colonel Jeff, James Vasquez, July 12th. Uh, Colonel Jeff at 10.30 Eastern Time, James Vasquez at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. So we'll double feature that day. On the 14th, we have uh, Irina Shev uh, at 12 Eastern Time, the journalist. And also on uh, July 14th, Thursday, at 7 p.m., we have uh, retired General Mick Ryan. So we have a huge uh, uh, array of guest speakers lined up for you guys. And uh, we really do hope you tune in at that time, at all those times I gave you, I should say. Uh, for our guest speakers. And uh, people at the Waltz Report, we work hard to bring you as many guest speakers as we can. We uh, do a lot of work on the back end to uh, research the news, make sure we get you guys accurate headlines, to arrange guests for you, to get expert speakers on the panel, to answer your questions. Uh, if you want to support anything we do, uh, we recommend you go to mariaaid.org. Uh, Waltz Report's a volunteer organization, and so is mariaaid.org. Uh, it's a volunteer organization, meaning 100% of your donation goes directly to acquiring uh, critical uh, non-lethal aid like tourniquets, body armor, drones, uh, thermal vision, night vision, uh, things Ukrainian soldiers and civilians need on the front lines right now. And uh, at Maria Aid, none of your uh, uh, donation will go to administrative costs or overhead costs of any kind. 100% of your donation goes directly to helping uh, Ukrainians right now. So we really implore you guys to please visit mariaaid.org uh, if you want to support anything we do. Uh, thank you so much for everyone who donates and everyone who will donate in the future. And as Language said, we got a great panel. Uh, if you have any questions for Language, specifically about his update, it would be a great time to come up and raise your hand. Uh, if you're a new speaker, uh, we welcome you. Uh, you're, you're free to come up and ask questions about uh, all the information Language just covered. And uh, with that, I will go to uh, the questions. I know Daniel has, has had his hand up for ages, so I'm going to go to Daniel first. Daniel, go ahead. Good morning. Uh, thank you, Language, for your military update. Uh, I follow you religiously, you and Andrew Perpetua because you are so good at this. Uh, Andre Perpetua, I never saw him become so grim. I think he's online here. Uh, he become disgusted about civilian lives killed by orcs. And just a small comment. I love Portland, but uh, comparing the authoritarian regime from Argentina and the case of Belgrano. I can say about orcs, they don't deserve 
any quarter, unconditional surrender or be killed. Just my opinion. I'm a bit grim. Sorry. Have a great evening. Thank you, Daniel. I, I share your sentiments. I, I can understand. I think also, though, of course, uh, there is the idea of, you know, giving your enemy a golden bridge to retreat or encouraging them to surrender by being merciful. But I can completely understand your sentiments. And of course, to me, it's up to the Ukrainians how they want to handle this. Uh, but with uh, that, we will go to uh, John. John, go ahead. Uh, thank you, Joseph. And thank you, Language. Appreciate the update, as always. Uh, in regards to the uh, missile strike on Odessa, did I hear that correctly? Did you say KH-31? Yes. Okay, do you mean KH-32s? Because a KH-31 is an anti-radiation missile. I Just going off what the Ukrainian media was saying, they said that it was a bunch of KH-31s. So, I... Oh. Okay, I presume that's probably a typo on their part, because, um, yeah, the KH-31, that's an anti-radiation missile. Um, so I don't know why they would be using it against Odessa. But, yeah, the KH-32, just in case anybody's curious, it's just an upgraded KH-22. So they're just using their old, you know, uh, cruise missiles. It doesn't even have a jet engine. It's a rocket engine. The KH-32 was what was used in the mall strike on Kremenchuk. There are any Ukrainian speakers in the audience. John would like to write an angry letter to the editor uh, that he needs translated. Sorry, go ahead, language. So the only reason why it could be KH-31, and you're probably right here, is in tandem with the fact that a uh, Russian spy network is currently in the process of being busted open. Um, at least one of their main handlers got caught, where their whole goal was to try and find the positions of Ukrainian anti-air defenses and anti-ship defenses, both of which would have some radar. Um, you know, if this was going out at the same point, then maybe these were, okay, well, we, we believe that this is where their anti-ship batteries and anti-air batteries are to fire these, you know, anti-radar missiles. Maybe that's it. I'm spitballing here. But uh, all we know is that there were several missiles. None of them are really being directed at Odessa City proper. It's mostly in the coastal regions, which also tends to the belief that these are being directed at uh, batteries of something rather than just more terror bombing. If I may add a brief follow-up to that, I just pulled up the, the publicly available uh, stats for the uh, KH-31's operational range. It appears to top out, again, this public numbers, assuming that these numbers are accurate, the range appears to top out, depending on the variant, at about 110 kilometers. So they would probably have to get well within Ukrainian S-300 range to be able to launch those. I guess it seems like it's more and more likely that it was a typo. Thank you for letting me know. John, we get it. You know about a lot about missiles, okay? Uh, no, thank you, John, for the correction. Uh, we do appreciate it. Uh, it's that kind of technical knowledge that you only get on the Walter Report, right? Uh, Troy, go ahead. Hey, thank you. Uh, language, thank you for the update as always. And uh, I had a question about the big, big explosion of the ammo depot. I, I don't know if I missed it or if it wasn't clear on uh, what piece of equipment. How did that happen? Was it a cigarette? Was it HIMARS? Was it a, a, a raid? Or do we not know? So it's most likely some kind of long-range rocket artillery. Um, could be an airstrike as well. We've increasingly seen Ukrainian airstrikes. However, the closest Ukraine positions I know of that are, you know, and that this is just the front lines, you know, not there are more things going on behind the front lines, especially in this area, because front lines are fluid. There's not enough Russian forces to guard every square inch. But the closest Ukrainian position is like 40 miles away something like that, which would indicate this is probably long-range rocket artillery or an airstrike, more so than some kind of, you know, super artillery gun that got teleported up there, right? Uh, the Russians are already claiming it's high Mars. The Ukrainians have been 
kind of mum, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, though a few people have said, I mean, what do you think it is, of course, it's long-range rocket artillery. So it's nice to see. This isn't the first time it's happened around Kherson. It's hopefully not going to be the last, though we have seen that Ukraine has a couple uh, opportunities here, including its air force, which has been increasingly active, really more in the Kherson region than anywhere else on the battlefield in the last few weeks. So could have been them too, you know, a Ukrainian fighter jet screaming along, firing a missile off, and then getting the hell out of there would accomplish roughly the same thing if it hit the right spot. But it's almost certainly this was an ammo depot, looking at the video of it. A small fire, then a very spectacular explosion. So something was there that, you know, a lot of something was there that got blown up. Yeah, that was like a Endor explosion. <laughs> Uh, nice Star Wars reference there, Troy. Uh, stick around after we get to the to the rest of languages questions because I think um, I think we're going to talk specifically about um, maybe video video evidence of Novikovka uh, and then uh, circumstantial evidence talking about Hersan and the the three purported Russian flag officers. So stick around. Thank you, Troy. And language. Thank Next, you. we'll go to Alex. Alex, go ahead. Thank you and thank you, language, for the update. Always um, here with. With great interest. My question is about Nikolaev. Um, you probably covered it. Uh, Russians are shelling it heavily almost every day and they don't seem to slow down, even despite these um, um, those uh, munitions being uh, like destroyed. Um, is there any any idea? Is this because Ukraine still needs more artillery, or um, is it coming like when we can realistically see that the Russian ability to shell and destroy Ukrainian civilian cities is uh, is being weakened? Any Maybe idea? Maybe we can stick with Mikolaev specifically, Alex. Go ahead. Yeah, Mikolaev, for example, Russians are shelling it heavily every day. Uh, any idea when this will stop? Uh, probably not for some time. Uh, so they've been shelling Mikolaev. There's reasons why they might want to do it besides just terror bombing, which is certainly a uh, part of the reason. But it's also a logistics hub for everything that's supporting the fight towards Hassan. We're one of the logistics hubs. And you know, it's only like 50 kilometers away, give or take, from Hassan City. Um, and in the middle, and then, you know, some of the suburbs are even less than that. They're like, I want to say 40. Russia can sit on the far side of the Dnipro River and fire long-range rocket strikes into Nikolaev, and there's very little Ukraine can do to stop that. They can also use ballistic missiles. They have Crimea nearby. Jets can fly in along the sea line, fire at it. Um, that's probably not something that's going to change, unfortunately, uh, for the near to medium-term future. Uh, even if Russian troops are pushed out of Kherson in the near future, they still have the capability to, you know, just kind of recklessly shell it at whim. So I don't see things getting better uh, for civilians in Mikolaev anytime soon as far as uh, getting out from under the, uh, you know, quite literal Russian gun here. But artillery needs shells, right? And I'm talking about artillery. I realize that for for cruise missiles, that's a different story, but... They are shelling it with artillery, uh, and artillery is stocked in munition. Like, how many depots they may possibly have? I mean, they have, they have Crimea nearby, which is the big thing. So, yes, you know, the, as the Russian depots are destroyed and as their logistical and command hubs are also destroyed, 
it will impact and inhibit their abilities to do these kind of strikes, not in, only in Nikolaev, but elsewhere along the front. However, Russia still has a tremendous amount of stockpile here, so it's not like they're not going to have resources. It's going to become a question of how quick can they get these resources to the front. And the simple fact is, you know, if they have one of these long-range Uragan missile launchers, they could set it up, you know, a good distance away from Mikolaev across the river and just run stuff up to it from Crimea every day in relative security and just continue to dump rounds into Mikolaev. So that's, and, you know, there's very little chance in the near future or even really the medium future that Ukraine's going to be able to do anything about Crimea. So unfortunately, I think we're going to run to a similar situation on a longer range scale as to what we're seeing in Sumy and Chernihiv, where the Russian forces can kind of just shell with abandon wherever they want within range of their guns because they have, you know, a Russian support network there that nobody else can really do anything about currently. Any follow-up, Alec? Um, may I also ask Portland uh, what he thinks? Or Portland, uh, what's your perspective on this? Um, you know, uh, language learners not wrong. It's a little bit too early to tell. Um, if you if you kind of reduce things to the uh, the dollars and cents, you you kind of get this number um, that they sorry the Russians need to move around twenty five to twenty eight hundred tons of uh, munitions a day to keep up. Uh, with demand. And uh, what we're seeing so far is that Ukraine looks like they are reducing that flow by, I guess, around 20 to 25 percent, which is enough that it complicates the picture for Russia um, across the board, really, but not enough that they can't launch strikes at will in specific areas that they that they choose. So I would expect that if you if you look at the number of launches that Ukraine has available right now, you realize that's about a third of of what they actually are expected to have come the end of this month. So if you take that 20% and you multiply it by three, you get 60%, which is enough that this is becoming a really urgent operational problem for the Russians. That's where you start having a, a situation where Russia has to save its, its ammunition for tactically relevant targets. So I would say probably we should expect to see significant developments in that direction towards the end of this month, but probably not before that. Thank you, Portland. Any uh, follow-up there, language? I think he's done it all. Thank you. And uh, next we'll go to John. John, go ahead. Uh, thank you, Joseph. Uh, language, I might have to correct myself here. Uh, someone kindly sent me a, a screen grab of the original uh, statement um, from uh, uh, regarding the uh, the missile strike on Odessa. I think I might have to stand corrected here. It says 4KH-31s uh, were fired from... Uh, one or more uh, SU-30s. If it was, in fact, an SU-30, it had to have been a KH-31 because only a TU-22M uh, can launch KH-32s. So it's looking like it was a, a, a seed strike, suppression of enemy air defense, or, you know, 
suppression of enemy coastal batteries in this case potentially strike which i have to say is kind of ballsy for them to get that close to ukrainian air defense batteries um considering how bad we've seen them at you know uh, suppressing uh ukrainian air defenses up to this point yeah 100 kilometers is pretty close eh, john we don't really hear about the russian air force usually operating like that 